Welcome to Arts and Humanities Futures, a series of conversations from the Leeds Arts and Humanities Research Institute, where we're exploring the future of research in the arts and humanities. It's a critical moment to be having this discussion. The world is responding to the enormous challenge of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has also thrown into sharp relief structural fragilities and inequities. The environmental crisis continues to unfold. Internationally, there's a reckoning with long-standing issues of racial injustice, and changes in the international order are shaping local and national contexts in a wide range of ways. These developments will help shape the arts and humanities, and the arts and humanities have a crucial role to play in helping societies respond to the changing world in which we live. So, in each conversation, we bring together researchers and stakeholders from the research community at Leeds to discuss some key questions, and, in turn, to stimulate further debate and reflection. What's changing in your fields? How might the rapidly changing context for research affect your work? How would you like to see research develop over the next few years? And what might we do now to make that happen? This conversation brings together University of Leeds colleagues Dr Jason Alain Paison, lecturer in Caribbean poetry and decolonial thought, and Dr Alaric Hall, Associate Professor in the School of English. Jason and Alaric discuss issues including the colonial view of the British landscape, colonialism and medieval studies, the medieval period, including race migration and historical immigration in Britain, and myth and folklore. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Jason, it's really nice uh, to see you, as I can here on Zoom, and to be talking to you. We've only met once in real life. Hi, Alric. Yes, (laughs) at a party. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, those long-forgotten events. I've been at Leeds since uh, 2007, but you're relatively new arrival at Leeds um, and you're the director of the Institute for Colonial and Post-Colonial Studies, right? Yes, that's right. Since uh, beginning of this academic year. Okay, right. Oh, so yeah, kind of newly arrived. I've taken over from from Graham Hogan, so uh, big, big shoes to fill there. Yeah, I guess so. So I started as the director of the Institute for Medieval Studies uh, what was it, two years ago? Uh, it's a bit, I lose track, but yeah, two years ago. And it was quite exciting to be able to kind of step it in. It is, and... it's exciting. And, and I've come with a, a plan, a five-year plan and um, specific ideas for doing things which are new and might be quite a different a different feel from from Graham, we're talking about two different minds and approaches. So it's it's always new to come in yeah. with, one, with your own vision as well. Yeah, right. different, different questions. Yeah, it's all exciting. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I wouldn't mind, if, if you don't mind, hearing a little bit about what you think your five-year vision for, you know, whether it's colonial and post-colonial studies at Leeds or, you know, where you see the field going might be, because that's clearly going to be quite important to your perception of what the humanities are and what they do. Yeah, there are a couple of things. Well, when we met with the Dean to discuss this, I thought, well, we're talking about colonial and post-colonial studies, but what might be a pressing theme now to kind of focus on for the next five years, given that post-colonial and post-colonial studies are so broad and that it's been 
now incorporated into into the universe into the university become sort of canonical in a sense it's yeah. it, institutionalized institution institutionalized yeah and so how could we jazz it up how could we re-energize this right. discipline and make for us to for, make us see but also other people see that it's still relevant to talk about colonial studies, post-colonial studies, and to have an institute for colonial studies. So I thought of the environment um, and the, I actually first of all thought about this business of the Anthropocene that everybody is talking about. Right. Should, should, we, should we just say what we think Anthropocene means? Well, uh, the Anthropocene um, is a term that speaks to uh, this geological period that we're in, which, whereas some people have a more formal, uh, has a, a sort of established scientific name for it, which I can't remember right now. Well, it's Holocene. The Holocene, right? Yeah. There you go. There, one particular scientist, and Crutzny he's called, isn't he? Uh, and many others who have joined in with him to say, well, the thing that most critically defines this era actually, geological era is the influence uh, of human beings uh, and their actions on the landscape and on the environment. So hence the term anthropo, anthropocene, right? Cool. So, right. So that that is is that a good Yeah, no, that that works works for me. Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't trying to test you. I just thought our, our listeners might Yeah. So um no, but I just want to make sure that I'm being absolutely clear for the listeners. Yeah. Um, many of whom will already know this sort of thing anyway. Fair enough. But so I thought about that and essentially adopted that idea for the ICPS for five years to come. Now, I thought that we're looking at the Anthropocene and ecological disaster and ecological crises and all of that on a glo global scale, but how do we also translate it to the local scale? Think about the communities that surround us, to think about um, local British communities, um, and, and, and many of them are people who live close to the university, and how do we think about the economic aspects, the social aspects, the community aspects, the knowledge aspects of those communities and the problems that they face and how the, all of that ties into ecological and environmental crisis and how we think about environment. Right. Um, as in not just as some abstract thing, but something that that has to do with people uh, and it, it's you know the lives of people deeply deeply interwoven in that so uh, which brings me to the second strand of what we're focusing on seeing that we're talking about people communities then i've also decided to focus on how do we get the university and this sort of academic work that we do to connect with the communities that that are actually surrounding us so to, right. to connect with people how do we break down this wall that we often imagine between the university and academic knowledge and right. 
communities. And that's been a big thing. Um, and I think that also is linked to my thinking about post-colonial studies, which have often been elitist in the sort of people and the sort of lives that it focuses on, and the sort of conversations that it engages in often have to do with privileged migrants rather than, shall we say, masses, the the people um, in their their local environments, in in local places, which we call the global the global south. So localized material problems, be they economic, um, sociological, or across an um, intersection of, of all of all of those things. So a big thing for me is engaging materially with with, right. with lives and with communities. And to kind of somehow bridge this gap between the theoretical on right. one hand and the material so the materiality of 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 lives which to my mind involves has to involve thinking with people thinking about how you involve people how you involve your stakeholders in the work that you're doing how do you how do you literally involve them in the conversations that you're having right. how do you um foreground their their knowledges can how do you think about using their knowledges and their experiences as, as a sort of vital active part of the work that you do yeah. that to my as i say it now it sounds like a very very it sounds very um, ambitious yeah. like a lot of work but i think um well, we should be ambitious I, yeah we should be ambitious i like to think that we can start in small ways like with small gestures yeah. so the first activity that i'm doing is called heritage and the environment and one of the two speakers is an activist she's a land rights activist oh, great. about um her name is um, Josina Kalist, by the way. I'm doing a plug here for the event that's on the 27th of May. <laughs> Good. <laughs> that's called Heritage and the Environment because uh, Josina is, um, she's, she was actually an academic and she burned out um, in academia and decided to... Um, or academia bur- burnt her out, as the case may be. Yeah. And so she, she um, shifted her focus to, um, this was all a gradual process, um, obviously, but she, she ended up in this kind of work where she's um, working along with um, grassroots um, activists, you know, everything at the mm. grassroots level and devising strategies, I guess, for how black people and people of color more broadly um, can have more access to to land in the UK, land for farming, for for um, for you know for growing their own food, um, but also I think for other purposes, right? All the other things that we use land for, and just thinking about how people of color are disproportionately excluded from land. Yeah, I guess both sort of physically and to some extent, uh, but also in terms of representation. Um, you know, I sort of freely confess though not with any pride that my kind of imagination of what the countryside looks like is white people in Britain and if, if I literally if I go hiking and you know I sort of pass a, a South Asian looking guy or something like that I, I like I say I re- regret that this happens but I do a bit of a double take I'm like why is this person not in an urban environment so there's something very deep seated about that and it's always reassuring to me to hear that from a white person because in my skin, and if listeners don't know who I am, I am a black person. I'm a person of African descent. 
um, I often feel that that's what's happening. Mm. But until you hear it, or unless you hear it, some, you're always wondering, you know, is is that what <laughs> is that right. what's happening? It's just a part of the the whole experience of of being racialized, actually. But um, mm. but that is obviously a a reality that that's something that's a reality that as as people of color we we we're very conscious of we we know uh, all about that and 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 so Jazina speaks to issues like like those and the person who's coming to speak with her is an is an academic so I thought right. it'd be good to have that's one of the models that I think is good is to have academics in conversation with artists oh. and activists. Um, and so that's what we're doing here. And her name is, this academic's name is uh, Corinne Fowler, Professor Corinne Fowler from University of Leicester, who has a book out called Green Unpleasant Land. All right. Uh, which you might realize the riff of uh, Blake's poem, um, which is, um, it, it has a couplet that goes something like, uh, has something with God's God's green and pleasant land. Yeah, yeah, until we build Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Exactly, right. So it's uh, what, what she's doing is um, questioning the idea of, uh, first of all, green and pleasant land, the green <laughs> and pleasant land for starters. But I think more importantly and more significantly, green and pleasant land for whom? And that's where I think her book is, that's where it kind of sits in, in thinking about this green and pleasant land and all the narratives and the ideas associated with the landscape. And right. um, a lot of them we get through the literature and the culture and the, the iconography around, around the landscape you know i'm thinking here about the lake district and uh the, the sort of wordsworthian idea of wandering through the landscape and connecting with nature and all of that kind of stuff and um the fact that not everybody can experience the landscape in that way I quickly hasten to say that we would want and we do want for everybody to be able to experience the landscape that way if they want to. And the book is also about that, about being conscious of those aspects of the landscape that are not so democratic and that, that are not so inclusive, if you want to work, use that word. So, mm. so and this is one of a long spiel to talk about that event on 27th May, Heritage and the Environment, but it's also part of the work that I do. It's, so it's it's the it's a work of the ICPS, um, so that gives a, a good snapshot of um, the environmental talks series that of which this is the first one, and it also gives a snapshot of my interests as a scholar and as a creative writer and a, a scholar creative writer because more and yeah. more I am breaking down the wall between the two. Uh, the two feed into each other uh, as a poet. I'd like to think that I'm thinking critically as well through my poetry, through this sort of gaze. My gaze on things that go beyond me, including class and gender and alongside race, and they're all intersectional, um, by the way, and how those affect 
our experiences in landscape, which to me is tantamount to saying, okay, how do we move away from the normative white male gaze and also the normative, that normative gaze, which is deeply tied up with the colonialists, the kind of like the colonial ideas about landscape, but also the colonial period insofar as so much of what we idealize in the landscape. I'm talking here about stately homes. Uh, I'm talking about uh, gardening and, 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 you know, tropical, you know, the fascination with tropical plants and, and that sort of thing. So much of that takes root within that colonial dynamic that we, we inescapably are involved with different landscapes and different bodies, even if we, we deny them. Uh, everything you're saying seems to me to be very resonant with um, medieval studies, which is the kind of part of academia that I come from. Um, and I don't know quite how obvious that connection would, would be, but um, um, the study of the European Middle Ages, um, well, for a start, when we talk about the Middle Ages, people more or less automatically think Europe, or maybe even England. Uh, we had a student at Leeds a few years ago who did some kind of focus group research and you sort of, if you do kind of word association stuff with, with people about, you know, what does medieval or the Middle Ages mean to you, they'll often say England. So, um, yeah, this idea of um, England or Britain or Europe as places kind of characterised by whiteness, um, as characterised by particular kinds of countryside and landscape, these these ideas are kind of sold to us within our own culture partly by people invoking a medieval past where you know there were lots of forests and uh, and all the people who walked around in them were white and um and both in a literal sense and you know a thousand years ago it is literally true that most people in britain uh were of kind of light skin color but but also we're projecting our kind of current constructions of race back onto a past where skin colour didn't mean the same things that it does now or didn't mean them in the same ways that it does now. So we're very kind of exercised um, in medieval studies at the moment about kind of thinking about how our field of study is kind of deeply embedded in the creation of whiteness, you know, through the uh, emergence, the post-medieval emergence of capitalism and globalisation and the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, our, our field of study has always been kind of part of how yeah, British colonialism and British nationalism have, or English nationalism as well, have legitimated themselves. So everything you're saying, you know, feels very resonant. Uh, yeah, these images of landscapes that you're talking about and, and how landscape gets raced. You know, I'm just very aware that my field is part of that process. And near the beginning of this conversation, you talked about, um, you know, you wanting to take post-colonial studies somewhere a bit new, feeling that it's been kind of institutionalised and kind of you know feeling perhaps a bit familiar uh, whereas for me in my field we spent most of the second half of the 20th century the post-war period just dealing with European nationalism and going okay you know medieval ideas were, were harnessed to the kind of ideals of the Nazi regime that led to a kind of you know horrific war within Europe and so we spent kind of the second half of the 20th century on a sort of Europeanizing project and have only quite recently started to go, oh, but then there was the rest of the world. Um, so, you know, to us, the post-colonial turn, as we might think of it, is quite not exactly new, but we're starting to kind of feel its importance 
bearing down on us in, in our current political moments in very kind of resonant ways. Anyway, so I just wanted to throw all that in really and just to pick up on what you're saying. Um, and I can kind of see how across these different bits of the humanities, uh, dialogues and long histories are kind of resonating and pulling in, in some ways, similar directions. Yes, long histories. I, li I, I like that. Listening to you talk about the whiteness of how the medieval has been taken up or used to reinforce an, an idea of a, a, a whiteness of a kind of like a primordial whiteness of the mm. of landscape. Um, I'm aware that there's work that's been done as well to show that there have always been migrations and movements um, Though we seem to think that migration is only a modern phenomenon, <laughs> but there ha there have been people traveling. There have been Afroic people, African people sure. in, Britain, in medieval age, very far back. Um, you know, I'm thinking about people like David Olusoga that I think a lot a lot of listeners will be familiar with, and his documentaries about uh, black in Britain as as a very very long history. Um, and how that just affects the way we look at the landscape and try to can avoid, should avoid looking at the landscape in terms of purity, some idea of we've it's 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 only ours and and, and that sort of thing. Um and also you know you will know all about this thing, but um the people who settled here, the Anglo-Saxons, weren't they migrants too? Oh, yeah, so, so many cans of worms. But right, yeah, Britain has a long history of, as you said, of people migrating um, over thousands of years. I mean, to come back to the Anthropocene, we can go back to the so-called last glacial maximum or, you know, what's colloquially called the last ice age about 12,000 years ago when, uh, you know, Britain was uh, under ice as far down as Watford, also, you know, near London, uh, and it was sort of tundra to the south of that. So although there had been people on this island prior to the last glacial maximum, sort of human civilization retreated. And then about 12,000 years ago, people started to migrate back to, to the island that we're sitting on. You know, I shouldn't call it Britain because that's a sort of very anachronistic term. And so since about 12,000 years ago, we can see that there have been lots of comings and goings of different folk from... Uh, particularly different parts of the Mediterranean basin and the Atlantic coast and Central Europe. Um, and you're right, you know, around the fifth century common era, um, some people turned up who had, well, we don't know quite what their ethnic identities were. We don't always know what they called themselves, but um, some of them called themselves uh, Saxons to use the kind of modern anglicized form. Some of them called themselves Angles and they spoke a language related to German and the Scandinavian languages um, that has become English. And so, yes, in a sense, the Anglo-Saxons were migrants. At the same time, we're also very conscious now that there was, in a sense, that the Anglo-Saxons were no such thing. Some people migrated, their language became influential. Some people who hadn't migrated adopted that language and then came to think of themselves as Anglo-Saxon. They may even have come to imagine themselves as migrants, even though genetically, you know, their gene stock had been in, in this island for a long time before. So we're seeing kind of cultural change of all sorts, but not necessarily just because one bunch of people moved from one place to another and kind of took over. You know, there's a very kind of complex ebb and flow of 
migration cultural change. Interesting that. But you you also said something which I find very interesting and I think uh, connects our research interests and that's myth and folklore. And you're interested in that from your perspective as a medievalist and how that sort of thing, that, that, that sort of mythology has been used sort of anchor uh, a white British, a kind of ur-British identity, if you will. And um, I'm interested in, in hearing you more on that score, because I think I have some ideas about how it might chime with some of the things I'm interested in as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for asking. And I, I really look forward to hearing your thoughts on this. You've invoked one of the kind of what we might call myths we live by, you know, that there was an Anglo-Saxon migration. And um, uh, you're right. So I I teach a a module for the undergraduates here at Leeds called Folklore and Mythology. I teach a module called that because um, students like those terms and they they think they want to study it. And I can get to teach lots of texts from a thousand years ago or indeed even two thousand years ago um, or, or, or longer and still get students sign up for the module. So, um, you know, in a way, it's uh, just me sort of trying to market um, medieval studies to, uh, to sort of slightly sceptical students who don't want to look at dusty old stuff. So I have to use these terms, folklore and mythology, but then I have to kind of begin the module by saying how problematic I think these terms are. Um, the term folklore was uh, created in the 19th century and like I use the word folk now, but it just means sort of general people, you know, there's you know, I I met some folk in the pub. It it doesn't mean an ethnic group or a nation the way that the word folk does in German, for example, right? So folklore, this word was coined to mean the study of a kind of a nation, an ethnic group, with a sort of self-consciously archaic use of the word folk, um, a use that we had a thousand years ago, but don't actually, didn't didn't have in the 19th century any more than we have now. And the word lore as well, L-O-R-E, it's not like I walk around talking about lore all the time. Um, So again, it's an archaic kind of word. And so in the 19th century, scholars who wanted to kind of um, create national identities, created this idea of studying folklore, kind of national learning, that would be a way to gloss that word. And they used these deliberately archaic words drawn from Old English in order to kind of suggest that they were studying ancient and traditional things that went back to the roots of the nation. And, and this word folklore has been borrowed into lots of European languages. You know, you get the French word folklorique um, and, uh, you know, lots of other languages besides. So English has been kind of very influential in this. So I, I'm teaching a subject where students want to sign up and study folklore. But um, in a way, this whole business of studying folklore goes back to 19th century nationalism and it goes back to 19th century scholars desire to kind of point at people who were poor and or foreign and say, you have folklore, you have this kind of weird, traditional, arcane knowledge, and we are scholars and we're kind of outside that. So it's kind of a patronising field of study and a patronising term. Can I ask a quick question? Is that yeah, linked sorry. to the emergence of ethnography as well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So ex- exactly the same time as you get kind of ethnography in the British Empire, as British imperialists want to sort of understand who it is they're trying to rule and to assert their superiority. They're kind of doing the same thing at home as well um, in terms of class, um, you know, scholars and aristocrats asserting their superiority over the peasantry, um, but also trying to convince the peasantry that they all belong to a nation that has a kind of destiny and a future and that 
uh, you know, peasants should be happy to go and uh, join the army and to fight in industrialised wars for these countries because they all share a culture, which is kind of partly created by scholars gathering folklore and then selling it back to people as, as their national culture. And the term mythology, you know, is likewise embroiled or kind of tied up in imperialistic endeavours, like um, Emma um, in the first of these podcasts was saying about how you can study the spiritual in a university in Britain if you do Christian theology. But that's, that's kind of baked in. We've got degrees in that. But if you want to do anything spiritual for any, anyone else, it's kind of mythology. It's not like a, no one does a degree in mythology. So again, it's a sort of patronising term, you know, kind of colonialists looking at other people's beliefs and saying, well, that's a myth. You know, it's not the same as my rational Christian belief. Anyway, so I, I'd be interested in your thoughts. I'm working you. on a book, um, um, actually... Uh, I've written a lot of of papers and I'm, I'm, it's all coming together as a book and I've written a proposal for it and it's called um, Thinking with Spirits, Engaging with Engagement oh. with Emis Hazir. And uh, it's fascinating because I feel like I can see how those ideas come together with what I'm looking at in my book and how they they really illustrate the concerns that I that I have in this book because I start this pitch this book proposal if you will with an idea that I call ontological alterity and I, I define it but I mean, it's just a fancy term for the ways in which the western order of knowledge so philosophy science ethnography and you name it has depicted Europe's colonized others as holders of faulty ontologies. Oh, wow. Oh, right. I see. Okay. And ontologies meaning like their understanding of... The understanding of being, the understanding of, you know, the human in the, and the human being and its relationship with the, with the world. Right. Yeah. Right? And how the, this, this faultiness then functions as a, the motive or the pretext for domination and for correction of the the ontologies um concerned right oh wow right um what i'm driving at is that this production of alterity which which uh, i could i could also say otherness this production of otherness in through writing through philosophy through science and oh. in related dis uh, disciplines is part and parcel of colonialism and imperialism and of their ongoing effects. In other words, this kind of othering of other knowledges and other traditions as somehow to be excluded from Western thought or in always right. in opposition or inferiority to, to Western thought, which is the def default body of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, were, absolutely. Is, is integral to, to the ongoing and material, you know, material and political effects of, of imperialism actually because it, it provides the pretext for conquest, for start, for domination, for ruling over, over you know, the melanin races, as people uh, right. would say. <laughs> and it, it, it justifies all these mechanisms of oppression. Um, mm. And it justifies the, the, the ideas that colonialists had um, and colonial states had that African and indigenous minds were inferior, naturally, mm, mm. Um, and that they didn't have philosophy or that they didn't have history. 
And when culture came, the term culture came around, but they didn't have culture either. So, and these ideas are still very much alive in how people think about the other, mm. how people, um, and they're often unconscious. They're often so deeply seated that people aren't aware of them and acting very invisibly, but very strongly in mainstream society and in mainstream conversations in the North or among Northern societies yeah. about the, the lesser developed and the, sure. the underdeveloped um, um, countries and, 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 what, and what they need to do, for instance. It's always a matter of Western yeah. societies or Northern societies doing things to kind of develop um, um, countries in, in what's called the global South and sort of mm. rectifying their, their, <laughs> <laughs> their problems <laughs> and their, and their sort of their, their, their mentalities really, and, and their, mm. their, their worldviews. And sadly, um, and, and these worldviews are obviously presented as the reasons for underdevelopment. Right. So, so, um, We've bought into that. I mean, I think Western pedagogy has really deeply bought into that mm. as a kind of unquestioned, you know, thing that goes 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 without saying, you know. As I've said, even when it doesn't openly articulate that because, you know, but it really does. And I think I'm interested in that sort of thing because I'm wondering what do we lose and what have we lost? How could we kind of rethink these dualisms, and they have everything to do with myth and folklore, right? Which is what right. we're talking sure. about. The kind of resonances that the the I mean, in associations sense, like, that come to mind right. when we talk about myth and folklore in in two thousand twenty one, you know. Yeah, so in one sense, you're kind of um, looking at knowledges that have for a long time been labelled as myth or folklore by the Western Academy or the Global North's Academy or by the kind of elite culture of scholars, you know, whoever's doing this labelling, you're looking at um, culture that's been labelled in that way and saying, no, this is actually knowledge. Or Precisely, yeah. This is actually knowledge. A lot of it, I, I mean, I'm not necessarily applying blanket terms here, but I'm interested in certain phenomena. Yeah. A lot of, you know, we're talking about these indigenous beliefs and practices um, African in, um, indigenous beliefs and other indigenous beliefs and practices and 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 my the title of my book is Thinking with Spirits because I'm interested in how in spirit as a category and its fate in in Western philosophy then and mm -hmm. how how spirit has been somehow sublimated into many other things you know um, Hegel speaks about Geist but but Geist is 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 um, the way Hegel sees it is not the way I'm talking about spirit, you know, because Hegel, Hegel's geist is a sense of thought um, kind of unfolding itself out of itself by itself, right? I'm looking at right. spirit as an autonomous category, um, energies um, that mm. function in their own right without the mastery or, or control of, of, of human beings, right? I'm thinking mm. about spirit in, in the sense of what goes beyond, while that it includes us, right? Because it's, you know, world is organic, but what goes beyond human cognition 
and right. human's ability to kind of master and master and, and control things. So how do we, in other words, I think a simple way of putting it is how do we work with things? How do we think along with the objects that we work with rather than just think about them in kind of conceptual ways, right? Um, and these are questions that I'm asking as well. Um, and it, 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 they tie into indigenous spiritualities and indigenous views and uh, including views that people would call animism, right? Sure. Which, which, which have to do with um, the idea that objects in the world, uh, be they rocks or trees or rivers and so on, um, and I think Nick Salazar is very interested. I know that Nick Salazar is very interested in this. Objects are not objects in, the, in our modern, commonplace, kind of rationalist sense of yeah. the word. Um, I know that's a challenging idea for, for many. But how can we think about rocks and trees and rivers as having, if not a personhood, now the problem arises when you think about the correct term to apply to these things. Right. If not a personhood, then at least let's call it an agential quality of their own. Um, and indigenous in indigenous cultures, everything has energy. The word the, the indigenous um, um, communities have always been deeply attuned to that. So that's probably a generalization about indigenous communities, isn't it? Which are, I'm sure, extremely diverse, but many at least. I admit, and I agree with you that indigenous communities, there are many, 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 and they're many diverse, but um, in all of the indigenous communities that I have inquired into have a sense, some sort of senses, the sensibilities. Which again, is very familiar to me from kind of patchy evidence that we've got for kind of traditional beliefs in Europe before the rise of the Abrahamic religions you know, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Yeah. And so again, yes, I don't want to make generalizations, um, broad sweeping generalizations, but um, I just say that, uh, to just go back to my, the, the, the basic point, yeah. which is that this, this project is looking at how we, we might rethink or unthink our ideas about, about things and objects, which really goes back to late antiquity and this sort of, you know, Aristotelian substance metaphysics, which has kind of framed the, the, the whole history of the sure. sort of the, the basal, the sort of the foundation of, of, of Western philosophical thought, right? This idea, I mean, um, in Aristotle, you know, you get this clear division between, you know, you know, substance is the sort of right. foundation of, of all things. And then there's a, a division between being and non-being. He makes this binary, you know. Mm. Um, and, and whereas he's preoccupied with substance, um, and he does acknowledge, somehow you get acknowledgements of spirit that it's a category there, hovering there somewhere, <laughs> right? <laughs> either he doesn't know what to do with that or there is this sort of anthropocentric idea of of cognition and thought that's emerging in in the in late antiquity that probably doesn't allow him to 
to uh, to actually think about okay so what is spirit actually how does it how does it mm. form part of us how does it affect thought can we think about human beings as a fusion rather than as a duality as a duality right right yeah. and that's kind of interesting to me partly because an obvious thing to do at the moment as we recognize that humans are animals too that humans are matter as well you know we're not necessarily you know we're just another part of a geological process again to go back to the anthropocene an obvious way to deal with that realization within a kind of post enlightenment traditional scientific worldview is just to say there is no spirit and you're kind of instead looking at uh, other knowledges to say well we can recognize that there is no dualistic split between the mind and the body or the spirit and the, and, and the material um, and instead say well can we can we get a more subtle dialogue between these ideas or, or, or conceptualize our, ourselves our being differently yeah I think so um, um, I think there is a part of us I mean and I say us because I've been educated in a western yeah <laughs> right it's kind of weird because being Jamaican I've I have a part as, as a part of my heritage old Afroic um worldviews actually that are still very much alive there but then I, I go to school in a in a right. colonial sort of like a, a western educational system it's it's colonialism right I'm just thinking about spirit as as a category is a threat or it feels like a threat to the kind of order of our, our knowledge right. and the order yeah. of our the um, I mean, I use the word governmentality, which is, you know, the, 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 the setup of the, the economy, the global system. Right. Um, and I think um, the, the global economy as it is now, but, but even what has preceded it in terms of what has prepared it, has laid the groundwork for it, needs materialism, needs a sense of... Mm the preeminence of 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 matter and of, right. and of materialism um because that is what you can control yeah that what absolutely. you can have mastery of and over right. um and if you exclude the 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 spiritual dimension of existence and if you sort of claim that if you if you um conflate it with religion which makes it easier to kind of exclude it as you know mumbo jumbo and that, that mm. and, and all of that. Then you 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 have an easier time of of. <laughs> but it, it and and that's what I'm. And it brings me to another aspect of what I'm interested in is how the terms have a have a history and therefore have a cultural resonance to them so if you say spirit people immediately start to talk about think about god and mm -hmm. theism and and that sort of mm. thing or or you know other related notions you see what i'm saying so sure but to say to say uh that spirit is part of what constitutes us or constitutes us as human being it's not it's not actually being theistic or um, what I'm, not that I'm nothing against theists, obviously, but um, I find it, yeah, I find these conflations and these reductions and how they operate very, mm. very interesting. On the uh, folklore and mythology module I was uh, saying about earlier, 
uh, every year we look at uh, parts of the book of Genesis from what in Christianity would be called the Old Testament and in Judaism would be called the Tanakh. Um, and for the first time this year, I got round to um, using uh, an English translation from the Hebrew, um, which is self-consciously uh, made from a Jewish perspective. And he's quite interested on the subject of uh, the Hebrew word. I think it's nefesh. I might have misremembered this, but nefesh meaning, well, spirit. Uh, it's often translated as spirit um, or as anima in the uh, Latin Vulgate Bible, uh, which then influences kind of Christian Western translations in all, all, all sorts of other languages. Um, but it's got a huge range of meanings in Hebrew, including things like neck. Um, and uh, going back to the Hebrew and retranslating from a, a Hebrew pers perspective, you know, uh, led this guy, uh, Robert Alter, um, to, you know, really rethink what, what's being talked about by spirit in the Hebrew Bible. It's a really interesting challenge and it's very, it's a word with a very, very deep and layered history in English with lots going on. <laughs> it's so interesting. Um, I, I have one other big question I'd love to ask you, but it builds on what you've been talking about and in some ways what uh, Emma and Nicholas were talking about in the, the first podcast as well. Uh, I was wondering about this when they were talking. You're kind of interested in, uh, for want of a better term, rehabilitating the spiritual. Um, maybe I could say that as a shorthand and challenging kind of post-enlightenment, uh, Western colonial forms of knowledge in doing so. And that, that to me is a really appealing prospect and very interesting and resonates with a lot of the research I've done on the European Middle Ages. Um, but at the same time, we're living through a kind of crisis of um, politics in the West. Um, you know, people in Britain uh, watching both the situation in North America with Donald Trump, and of course we tend to identify a lot with North Americans to the extent that, you know, we're often labelled the Anglo-Saxons, uh, English and, and American people or British and American people. So we've looked at the situation there, we've looked at our own political situation in Britain and the rise of populism, and we've come to kind of realise that we can no longer rely on cosy assumptions that we behave better than the rest of the world, that somehow, you know, British people or white people or Western people are immune from coups and um, bad governance and demagogues and so forth. You know, we should have learned that in the 1930s if we hadn't learned it before, but we've had to learn it again. And so that, that cosy sense of um, the superiority of um, Western and colonial education systems is under pressure. And at the same time, we, we, we've, well, we've got, you know, what gets referred to as post-truth politics, this situation where politicians feel that they can say what they like and they seem to be able to get away with it. And so part of me is just desperate, desperate to go back to a world of objective knowledge. And I do think that part of my kind of mission as an academic is to sometimes establish facts or at least establish clearly the parameters of what can be rationally known, which is not quite the same as facts. You know, and like we're talking on Zoom and Zoom works because objective scientific knowledge has, you know, made achievements in material science and um, enabling us to ma manipulate the material world that we live in, in concrete and objectively kind of uh, demonstrable ways. So um, yeah, is there a space for objective truth? And I ask you this, partly because it's a hard question, partly because I think you'll have interesting opinions, and partly because it does go to the heart of, well, what the humanities is and what we're doing. No, I mean, it's a very interesting question, obviously. Um... I don't know, I should say that first off the bat, that I don't know that I have a, 
a straight answer to it. Um, and it's, that's probably a good thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Huma- humanities people should be good at not having straight answers. Yes, I think that's part of our problems. We have too many straight answers for everything. But I mean, what, I, what I'm kind of thinking is that, could it be that objective truth is not necessarily standing in contradiction, in contradiction with, with that sort of stuff that I was talking about? You know, the, mm. that sense of knowledge that comes, in a sense, I guess I would put it, you know, from our sense of our co-naturalness with, with the world and, and that that mm. knowledge knowledge through embodied knowledge vital philosophy that comes from from connection with things is not necessarily could it be anyway let me pose it as a question could it be that that is not um antithetical well i do have a problem with this with the, the expression objective truth uh-huh. because you do go back to this sense of uh this aristotelian I guess a uh, sense of you know substance metaphysics objective truth I think that's the first question <laughs> I have a problem with the term yeah objective truth I can handle rationalist truth or okay or conceptual truth or scientific truth but that even scientific truth is based on the science that is currently available sure it's always provisional or contingent but i think i can handle rational rationalist truth um let's say the truth that's about trump not denying the fact of climate change for instance or trump not from not um calling everybody a liar and and him yeah trumpism right right yeah 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 absolutely or 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 brexit demagoguery or or something yeah. that, that is the kind of thing that we're we're really we see eye to eye on that because we both see that as huge problems in the society right yeah um but i mean i mean simply i i keep keep thinking you know what if what what if human beings were more into the spiritual and that that sort of like sense of connection um with 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 the planet and and the sense of care and ethical duty that comes right. with being with paying attention to things is what i want to say right uh, what if yeah. human beings their, their mentalities were oriented in those directions could that be a solution to the, could that be a way out of the kind of self-absorption that we have with the absorption that we have with ourselves and with consuming and with, and with things and with objects and with borders and with territory and with property <laughs> right. and with all of those things. Because I think ultimately yeah. the, the Brexit problem, uh, it's linked to nationalism and it's linked to a sense of, 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 the self and the property and the territory that's defined mm. only in opposition to those others and to the threats and to mm. what lies beyond the boundary. I mean, that's how I see Brexit. I don't know if you 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 see it in those terms, but I see I see the problem with nationalism as linked to the problem or problem with things, and um, actually, okay, that's um, fascinating. 
And, and so I, I'm, I'm thinking if we have a different relationship with things, I call oh. it an, a different ontology of objects, a different ontology oh. of things, then perhaps, and this is a big perhaps, because right, I'm I'm thinking about those these questions, right? I don't want to, I don't want to be the sort of person that's sort of locked in a kind of doctrine, right? But mm. but perhaps then, we might have a different approach to the foreigner, the the other, the and to land to pick up on the earlier point. Who knows? Perhaps it it might not be entire or might not be the entire solution here but i inevitably in these questions end up going back to communities that live in a more um self-sustaining and sustainable way um in terms of how they they dwell they, their living practices um which we call savage and primitive and that sort of thing um but which we're realizing more and more that we perhaps we need to cast a glance to those, to such people, and back to probably sort of past ways of living in which some of our expectations and some of our knowledges that we oh. currently have didn't hadn't yet emerged. Um, and I don't know. Does that does that is that answering your question? I find it genuinely helpful. Yeah, I don't know if this is a fair summary of what you've been saying, but what it kind of puts in my mind is this sense that um, the challenges to colonial forms of knowledge that you've been discussing remind us that the rationalist project has never actually been entirely rationalist (laughs) and um, it needs that kind of critique from other forms of knowledge in in order to achieve its own end, uh, an end that it's often um, kind of failed to achieve. And I'm not not sure, I'm, I'm not trying to accuse you necessarily of trying to kind of implement in a new form, the Enlightenment Rationalist Project. No, I know you're not. We're thinking together. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's an, I genuinely think it's an, it's an excellent question um, and a good sort of place of, of tension to dwell, actually. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it, isn't it? You know, um, this tension between rationalism and, and those parts of our being which we uh, obscure and, and, and try to deny um, the irrational, yeah. irrational aspects of our of our being that connects us to 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 sort of a bigger whole. Yeah, I like that. So, so thanks. I think it's a good place to end. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let's do that. I've so enjoyed the conversation. Thanks ever so much. I, I, you know, both enjoyed getting to know you a bit more and getting to know your work, and also what you're doing in the Institute for Colonial and Postcolonial Studies. Um, and I've just benefited intellectually from this discussion. So thanks, Jason. So have I. So have I actually, hugely. Thank you for joining the conversation. This is one of five conversations to be released over May and June 2021, which are all available via major podcast platforms. If you'd like to comment on any of the issues raised on social media, use the hashtag Arts and Humanities Futures and follow us on Twitter at LeedsAHRI.